Good afternoon. It's Friday the 16th of February 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today by video link, we've got Vanessa Bailey from Damascus and Ben Rubin from London. Uh, welcome both to the programme. We're going to get started uh, with the online safety bill. And well, the BBC had this headline uh, yesterday. Brianna Gay's mother, Esther, says Online Safety Act does not go far enough. Now, of course, uh, Esther Gay was the subject of uh, apparently uh, an insult by Rishi Sunak the other day in the House of Commons and uh, the uh, Labour leader decided to criticise Rishi Sunak for this. Uh, and of course, this has driven a lot of headlines over the last couple of days. But one of the, the features of this is that uh, uh, Esther Gay said that although she tried to withdraw access to uh, her mobile phone to her daughter, uh, in fact, that really wasn't practical because uh, of bullying and other reasons. Uh, so she basically had to give the phone back. Um, now, of course, this is driving a lot of narrative with regard, with regard to protection of children online uh, with uh, respect to the Online Safety Act. Uh, and of course, behind the, this um, cover for censorship is the entire censorship regime. But let's uh, remind ourselves that Ofcom has uh, a consultation going on at the moment. Uh, this is the first of four major consultations that Ofcom as regulator of the new Online Safety Act will publish as part of our work to establish the new regulations over the net next 18 months. So the, time of the timing of the Esther Gay story, very uh, prescient. So the, this consultation ends on the 23rd of February uh, in a few days time. Uh, and they say that they will cover the following, uh, the causes and impacts of illegal harms, how services should assess and mitigate the risks of illegal harms, how services can identify illegal content and our approach to enforcement. And of course, uh, they're suddenly talking about illegal harms because the concept of legal harms uh, was dropped following pushback from the general public during the process of the online safety bill going through uh, on its way to becoming an act. Uh, but the question is, what are they talking about here in terms of uh, assessing and mitigating risks of illegal harms and, and approaches to enforcement and so on? Um, well, first of all, what kind of organizations are they talking about? They talk about large services. Uh, as discussed, we propose to define a service as large, where it has an average user base greater than 7 million per month in the UK, approximately equivalent to 10% of the UK population. So, okay, that's talking about uh, Facebook, Twitter, these types of organizations. But then they go on to talk about small services, smaller services. These are all services that are not large and will include services provided by small and micro businesses. So this goes down to uh, a one-man band, uh, assuming you're a business uh, of some kind, providing any kind of uh, online discussion forum or uh, perhaps a, a, a campaign group of some kind. Doesn't have to be very, very big at all. And the question then is, what's the regulatory uh, uh, hurdle or the re regulatory burden going to be on people? So. Uh, Let's have a look at a couple of the tables here. Well, first of all, a named person is going to have to be accountable to the most senior governance body for compliance with illegal content safety duties and reporting and complaints duties. And that applies to uh, low, uh, smaller services, sorry, so that's small organizations, even down to what Ofcom would uh, describe as being low risk organizations. Um, and in fact, there are I think something like 14 pages of tables similar to this of regulatory burden, which is going to be imposed on even the smallest organizations under this legislation uh, or under this uh, regime. 
And if we just look at the end of this in terms of record keeping itself, um, so they, they have entire annex, or they have an annex here on the records that providers must make and keep. Uh, the fact that they need to be durable, easy to understand and up to date, uh, where reasonably practicable records should be kept in English or, or Welsh, but if there should be a, a translation into English. Uh, records should be updated to capture changes in risk assessment or code measure, uh, but earlier versions should be retained so the provider is able to provide both current and historic records of how it has complied with the relevant duties. Uh, records are, which are no longer current should be retained for a minimum of five years unless a specific record has been provided by Ofcom. So uh, clearly this is going to be a massive uh, burden on smaller organisations that don't have the staff, don't have the money uh, to pay for this type of uh, uh, regulatory administration. Um, but let's uh, see where this ends up, because of course at the heart of this are por uh, pornography pr providers. These, uh, this particular uh, grouping has been the poster boy for most of the legislation uh, here with respect to safety for children. And of course, behind all this is the idea of age assurance. So what they say here is the digital identity wallets, open banking, photo ID matching, age estimation based on face biometrics, mobile operator checks, credit cards are all considered sources of highly effective age assurance. Um, and basically they are uh, requiring, are going to require uh, this type of age assurance. Now, of course, this is, isn't about, isn't going to impact children so much necessarily. It's certainly going to impact all of us because we're all going to have to validate our ages uh, with any platform. It'll start off with the pornography industry, but it won't end there. Uh, it will uh, move out from that to many, many other areas uh, of internet use. Uh, and of course, this is ushering in digital identification amongst other things. Um, open banking they talk about, well, what does that mean at the end of the day? We shall see. Uh, but this doesn't end in the UK. Of course, we have similar uh, legislation in the uh, in the EU, but now the United States is catching up quickly uh, with the Kids, on Safety, Kids Online Safety Act, as it's being called. Uh, this now has enough support in the Senate to pass, uh, at least as far as the Senate is concerned, um, and that's following pressure uh, which resulted in various uh, issues being dropped from the bill that were, that were preventing that from passing. Um, it's, as usual in the United States, getting exactly the same of me media treatment as, as this type of thing has been in the UK. Um, multiple threats converge to heighten disinformation risks to this year's US election, says Just Security, and they uh, tell us about how great it is that the, online, the Kids Online Safety Act is is on its way in the United States. So where does this end up? Well, whether we're in the uh, US or the UK, it these le legislation and the various regimes that build from it uh, enable widespread censorship. It will lead to age verification and identification checks right across the internet. It might be uh, using children as the excuse to begin with. It might be using pornography as the excuse to begin with, but this will expand. Um, Vanessa, let me just ask you for comment here. I realize I'm hijacking you, but but what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, it's what we've always perceived it to be at the beginning, the thin wedge of uh, overall censorship of anything um, that is going to challenge the establishment, but also, as you said, the incoming of digital ID when you're talking about age verification and identification checks. And we're already seeing that 
I've mentioned before that YouTube, every time I want to upload something, demand a verification from me. Um, Facebook locked me out the other day. Twitter regularly now raises questions. So it's all heading in the same direction. Uh, it is indeed. And just to, just to finish this off then, um, just mention the fact that, of course, at the heart of this uh, was the availability of uh, mobile phones to children and the resulting uh, devastating effects of that. Uh, we published an article uh, back in uh, 2019 by Dr. Mike Williams talking about this. Uh, screen time is damaging us. And one of the things that he's highlighting here is the uh, neurological effects that the use of uh, these types of devices have, particularly on very, very young brains. Um, and, uh, and of course, those effects don't disappear as brains get older uh, because the damage has already been done. Uh, so if you haven't seen that or read that article, Screen Time is Damaging Us, uh, please have a look at that and you could perhaps share it. Uh, now, Ben, uh, let's uh, welcome you to the program. And uh, well, what are we talking about here? Uh, UCL, what have they been up to with respect to climate change and net zero? Quite a lot, it would appear. Uh, I've been out in the field this week. I've been behind enemy lines, uh, you might put it. Um, not that we're in an actual war zone here in London, but there's certainly a propaganda war going on, and UCL sit right in the thick of it as far as it relates to the climate crisis and the green transition. And they ran this big event that I went to on Wednesday, uh, local to national, achieving the green transition, hashtag love your planet. And this was a big collaboration between UCL and the Climate Reality Project, which was uh, held in Logan Hall, which is in UCL's big brutalist Death Star of, of a building down in Bloomsbury in central London. So um, uh, for those who don't know, UCL is University College London. Uh, it's, they describe themselves as London's global university. They've got 51,000 students, 16,000 faculty. That actually came from one of the vice provosts on stage. I think there's a remarkable number of employees uh, to, to have on staff for that, that number of students. I'm guessing that probably includes people studying for MAs and, and MSCs and PhDs and that kind of thing. Uh, they look after billions in research funding. They are the source of billions of pounds worth of spin outs from their research facilities. And they really boast about um, this unique global reach that they, that they have. Right. So they've talked about themselves as being a global university. Um, they actually um, were, were really pushing this on stage. So they, do, they, they co-author more papers as an organization with other academic institutions from G7 economies than any other UK-based academic institution. They're really hot on climate science, policy, and communication. And this is very clearly an important conduit point for these ideas to get out into the wider academic political and economic ecosystems. So UCL is right in the heart of all of this climate stuff that we're hearing about. Uh, the event, as I said, was done in partnership with the Climate Reality Project. Now, this is a really interesting organization. They're basically a global activist network founded in 2006. They've got a network globally of 3.5 million people that they boast about, uh, and they're all focused on delivering a just and sustainable transition to net zero. We're very familiar with all the language. And it's chaired by Al Gore, former US president and climate aficionado. And he opened up the session. I'm going to uh, play a little clip of his opening remarks. Hello, everyone. I'm really glad to join in welcoming all of you to this important gathering. And 
Let me start by simply applauding the tremendous partnership between Climate Reality Europe, University College London, and the Climate Cafe for coming together to organize today's event. Together, all of us have just lived through the hottest year in recorded history here on Earth, a year that many scientists believe was the hottest year in 100,000 years and probably much more than that. We've experienced the destructive fires and smoke, the devastating floods and landslides, the widespread droughts, the melting ice and sea level rise, the much stronger the storms that have caused so much damage and many other horrific impacts caused by humanity's collective failure thus far to tackle the climate crisis with the urgency it obviously demands. We know what we've got to do. We need to stop using the sky as if it were an open sewer. We have to rapidly phase out uh, the use of fossil fuels as quickly as possible and move then to replace them as quickly as possible with the clean energy solutions that are fully available to us today. The electricity is cheaper in almost the entire world. It doesn't have the co-pollution that kills many millions of people each year with the lung problems. It creates three times as many jobs per dollar spent or per pound spent uh, compared to money put into the old dirty poisonous fossil fuel complex. Do you think he really believes this, Ben, or is he just lying? Because, I mean, anybody that suggests that electricity is cheaper uh, under net zero, is, is that just, oh, I don't know, I don't even know how to comment on that, actually. Right, yeah. I mean, so my, 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 my comeback to that is I think that everything he just said there is false, demonstrably false, every single bit of it. Um, maybe a couple of little nuggets of truth in and amongst, you know, we certainly shouldn't be using the sky as a sewer. I believe that. Um, but the rest of it, I think you can um, pretty much, oh, God, I'm going to say debunk. I really don't like using that word, but I've done it now. Um, but anyway, you can uh, check out the full video. It's available on the YouTube. I shared it on the Rise UK Telegram channel as well. Also worth noting is the green badge. They had a little green badge on there, which is a bit like the SDG pin. And basically, um, to become part of they, this organization, the Climate Reality Project, you end up um, getting personally trained by Al Gore, right? So there's a kind of big um, sort of cachet to that. And a bunch of the speakers were, were, you could see them on stage getting all excited about who was wearing a green badge and who wasn't wearing a green badge. And there were a bunch of big hitters there, right? I mean, this is UCL, Central London, Al Gore. Um, we're going to have a look, a little look at the agenda here. Uh, it's far too much on there for you to read. You might want to take a screenshot or, or go back and pause it if you're not watching live, just to have a proper read through. I made it about two thirds of the way through the day uh, because uh, it, it was just all so predictable. It's basically wall to wall activists and um, uh, no dissenting voices whatsoever. Loads of UCL people. So UCL has many, many, many people engaged around climate and green transition. It's it's it's, it's a real hot area for them. Um, and they had uh, representatives from C40 City. So coming up here, we've got uh, Mark Watt from C40, who is the president of C40 Cities, right? So when I say big hitters, these are the top people in these organizations pushing for the green trans transition up on stage, trying to get us to move away from, from fossil fuels. There was actually a really interesting little bit of dissent. I said there was no dissent on stage. There was some dissent in that session. 
someone asked a question at the end, uh, a gentleman who I went to speak to, he's going to remain nameless. I don't know if he brought me talking about him on the column necessarily, but he basically pointed out that all of this looks like a World Economic Forum and UN plot. And people in indigenous communities in places like South America see this as just another set of extractive industries pushed by the West. It's going to make a load of money for people in places like UCL and, um, in, and in their connected ecosystem. And when the lady, Preeti Parikh, started to answer the gentleman's question, the banner snapped closed, shut on stage and shut her up. And it was like a little bit of divine intervention, which was quite, quite enjoyable, actually, um, uh, in and amongst all of, all of the falsehoods coming from those who'd been booked to come and, and share the message on stage. Um, the third big session um, was uh, about the role of policy in driving the green transition. So, again, some more big hitters here. Uh, Shirley Rodriguez, Deputy Mayor of London, which is part of C40 Initiative. We had some senior people from the Tony Blair Global Institute. We also had um, Georgia Gold, who's the leader of uh, Camden Council, um, who was particularly interesting. She talked about this as a social justice issue. I mean, this this sort of neo-Marxist terminology has infected absolutely every component of this climate discussion. Um, she also talked about using citizens' assemblies, which we've discussed at length here on the column, and that they allowed them to be bolder than they ever would have been alone, right? So they're using these assemblies as a way to push through progressive policies that um, they probably wouldn't have been able to get uh, get away with uh, any other way. Uh, there's a big future leader, um, youthful kind of movement behind this. So lots of youthful enthusiasm. Obviously, it's at a university. So there's a lot of very young, very enthusiastic people basically saying, how do we get involved in global policy, right? So there's a pipeline of these really heavily indoctrinated young people going directly from academia straight into activism. Right. And a lot of these, you know, the, the, even though people on stage, you had maybe like two or three years of semi-professional experience and then they're off writing policy statements about the future of civilization really is a recipe, a recipe for disaster. And that Future Leaders Network is one of the organizations that, um, that was that was mentioned. Um, so coming back to, to Georgia Gold, actually, I think she's a really interesting character, right? Um, and she probably came off one of these future leaders programs. Uh, she's been leading the council uh, in Camden since 2017 when she was barely scraping her mid-30s. That's her in the middle there. Um, uh, uh, interesting for a few reasons. First of all, she brought up uh, the 3CI organization that I spoke about here last week. Right. And, and that I, I spoke about with reference to Bristol and West Yorkshire and Humperside. Right. So she's talking about it as well. So this is clearly going to be prominent. Um, she said that that organization had identified a 206 billion pound funding gap across 10 cities around the UK. And that the only way to fill that gap, it's an extraordinary amount of money, right? 206 billion pounds for 10 cities. The only way to solve that gap is through public private partnership. Yeah. Really interesting. She's also part of. What I describe as a kind of multi-generational, liberal, progressive, globalist uh, cabal, really, centred around North London, the Labour Party, the Guardian newspaper, places like that. Her parents were Philip Gold and Gail Reebuck. You see them here. Philip Gold, actually Lord Gold, so the former ad executive, architect of New Labour, close advisor to Blair, Mandelson, Campbell, and when he left Number 10, he went to Freud Communications. We've spoken about a lot because they run Gold's house. And actually, a bunch of Blair's other people went to Freud Communications when he left 
Downing Street. And um, uh, uh, Georgia Gould's uh, mother is Baroness Gail Reebok. Some quite high-powered people here. She's the former CEO of Penguin Random House, and she's still on the board, one of the biggest publishers in, in the world. She's on the board of The Guardian. She's the chair of Somerset House. She's on the management committee at Bertelsmann, the big German media company. And she's also uh, a, a Labour peer in the UK House of Lords, Baroness Rebook of Bloomsbury. Right? So Georgia Gold is an extremely well-connected and well-backed individual. And she's pushing some extremely dodgy policies on the people of Camden and essentially using that as a way, as a bridgehead to get it out further afield into into British society. Uh, and then finally, um, just to land on uh, a guy that came to prominence at the back end of last year, this is Professor Mark Maslin, who is the Professor of Earth System Science at UCL. He spoke at numerous points during the day, and they say that the eyes are the window to the soul, and this man's eyes are as black as night when I look into them. Go and find some pictures and you'll see what I mean. As I said, uh, he came to prominence last year. Uh, he was involved with the big Joe Brand-affiliated climate push, basically translating science into layperson speak. Uh, I found the whole thing quite, quite condescending, to be honest with you. You can see him here in his red shoes on stage at the event on, on Wednesday and basically saying that his advice for activists is to ignore disinformation and misinformation that's being pushed on social media. All criticism that you might receive is just bots or fossil fuel lobbyists. Don't read everything. It's not true. And the public can smell a fraud, which I thought was quite a remarkable thing for him to say because he cer certainly smells like a fraud to me. And I think the public are actually onto this. Um, because Nesta published this piece a couple of days ago, basically pointing out that an increasing number of people believe that the media exaggerates the impact of climate science, especially in the 16 to 24-year-old age group, which goes some way to telling me that this entire program is failing and that there is some hope for the future. Okay, Ben, thank you very much for that. Vanessa, uh, let's move to the Middle East. Uh, Egypt and the buffer uh, I guess for aid is what we're talking about here. Um, no, not no, exactly. Okay, so apologies. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, I'd be interesting to hear if any of these climate conferences ever bring up the subject of the military-industrial complex effect on our environment, and I would almost guarantee that they don't. We can perhaps discuss that in um, extra. But anyway, uh, back to Egypt. So I'm going to start with the very important visits that have taken place over the last week. First of all, CIA Director William J. Burns and Israeli Intelligence Chief David Barnes met Tuesday in Egypt to continue, that was the 13th of February, um, to continue negotiations for possible hostage release deal. Burns also met with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, uh, with whom he discussed a possible ceasefire. So we have the CIA arriving on the 13th of February, and then in the last two days, we've seen um, Recep Erdogan, the, the president of uh, Turkey, arriving in Egypt for the first time in 10 years. They actually entered a stage of enmity, of course, when um, President Sisi, and it's spelt wrong in the Haaretz article, Sisi, um, overthrew uh, the allegedly democratically elected uh, President Morsi. So this was, to some degree, um, a fairly uh, important meeting. 
But of course, it's centered around Gaza. Uh, Erdogan is trying to get more influence over the negotiations. Egypt itself is in competition with Qatar over who will have the monopoly in managing efforts with Hamas to come to an agreement. Um, but what's interesting here, um, now Egypt talks about its national security, which could come to pass the risk if masses of upwards of a million Gazans were to come across the border in Sinai, if and when, and of course Israel has actually begun um, the military operation or certainly the bombing operation in Rafa in the far south on the border with Egypt. Now, that would uh, impinge upon what is known as the Philadelphia Accord. The Philadelphia Accord was signed in September 2005, effectively gives Israel control of the territory uh, in Rafa, in Egyptian Rafa on the border with Palestinian Rafa in Gaza and is seen by Israel as an extension of the Camp David Accord signed in 1979 under the president of Sadat's um, government uh, and was perceived as a betrayal of Palestinian national interests. But what's interesting, so we've had these two very influential meetings. Sorry, Mike, can I just go back for one yes. second? Um, uh, and on Twitter, uh, an organization called the Sinai Foundation for Human Rights, which interestingly, um, according to its Twitter account, is based in London, is talking about the building of a gated high security area on the border with the Gaza border fence um, on the Egyptian side. And then if we can move on, what they say in their tweet the Sinai Foundation obtained information through a relevant source that indicates that construction work currently taking place in eastern Sinai is intended to create a high-security, gated, and isolated area near the borders with Gaza Strip in preparation for the reception of Palestinian refugees in the case of the mass exodus uh, from Gaza Strip. So effectively, they're building what looks like um, another prison for Gazans already contained within an ever-diminishing prison. Um, they have numerous articles on their website um, and uh, the following video, which just uh, shows basically um, the industrial bulldozers and uh, the, the work that's going on next to the border, if we can just roll the video. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Um, yeah. So, I mean... Basically, I can't verify this video, but it has been picked up now by numerous uh, mainstream media outlets, and it does appear to, I do recognize the area. What it's showing, that areas that were already raised by Egypt to basically displace the Bedouin tribes that were living in Egyptian Rafa, that area is now being paved um, and leveled in preparation for what does appear to be um, as shown on the next map, this kind of compound area, as you can see, right on the border, which is the red line with Gaza, and next to the Israeli-controlled Kerem Shalom um, crossing. Now, I mentioned it's been picked up by uh, numerous mainstream media outlets. That includes CNN. Here, CNN uh, show a Maxar Technologies um, image, which shows widespread bulldozing on the uh, border with Gaza. And CNN goes on to basically describe very much the same as the Sinai Foundation. 
they're building a massive, Egypt is building a massive miles wide buffer zone and wall along its border with southern Gaza. Um, so if we move on and just go back to the Sinai Foundation report, now what's interesting here, they mentioned that who's in charge of this construction, the Sons of Sinai Construction and the construction company of uh, the Al Arjani Group or the Organi Group as it's also spelled. Now, who heads up this organization? A guy called Ibrahim al-Ajani. If we move on, we'll just see a nice picture of him, um, which is the header page of his Organi Group website. Who is uh, al-Ajani? Well, if we look at Egypt's monopoly on rebuilding Gaza, this is a report in Israeli media in 2021 in Haaretz. It serves both Israel and Hamas. And then if we look at the description of who is the main beneficiary of the reconstruction plan in 2021, is the company Beni Sinai, owned by Bedouin businessman Ibrahim Al-Ajani. Um, but it also goes on to say that he cooperates with Egyptian intelligence in its war against the terrorist groups in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, he owns some of the largest construction firms in Egypt takes his orders from Egyptian intelligence and also a big cut of Egypt's aid to Gaza and from the movement of goods from Egypt into Gaza, mostly those that pass through the Saladin checkpoint in Rafa. Now, what is also interesting is that he controls the Rafa crossing. The Rafa crossing is now charging $5,000 for every Palestinian adult to, to pass through the Rafa border into the safety of Egypt. $2,500 per child, even if that child is injured. Um, now, the story of Egypt evicting Rafa residents to create uh, this buffer zone goes back to, in fact, 2013. But this report is from 2014. And if you do a search uh, on Google, you'll find multiple human rights uh, reports on uh, the, basically the destruction of Egyptian Rafa potentially in preparation for what is now being described as, as another smaller open-air prison to receive Palestinian refugees. And also going back to the idea of the Philadelphia um, Agreement, so in other words, this territory would then be under the control of Israeli forces. So not only is Egypt potentially creating uh, a secondary prison not on Palestinian land, but that prison would be under the control of Israeli forces. Um, and then I just wanted to show a quick video of the existing border wall between. Um, so this is between, there's actually two walls, and that strip that you see in the middle is basically what you have to cross when you go from Egyptian Rafa into Gaza. You can't go on foot because you'll be shot um, by the Israeli snipers that are in watchtowers along that wall. So already um, there is a degree of imprisonment by Egypt of the civilians of um, Gaza. And then I also wanted to just quickly show this video, which came out in the last week of kids, starving kids um, that have been displaced multiple times and are now in Rafa to the furthest uh, south of Gaza that was designated a safe zone by the Zionists. Now there are almost uh, daily massacres of upwards of 100 uh, Palestinians um, by the Israeli uh, Air Force. So here the kids are actually begging Egypt to come in 
and save them, which is slightly ironic on the basis of the report I've just given. But if we can just play that video. So basically, it does appear as if Egypt is not only profiting um, from the imprisonment of uh, Palestinians inside Gaza, but it is now enabling the Israelis to ethnically cleanse Gaza into um, another uh, prison not on Palestinian territory. Okay, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Uh, that's, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, if you uh, like what the UK column does, sorry, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, you can do that at support.ukcolumn.org. Uh, that's a new page. If you would like to have a look at it, uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, you could uh, share material you find on the various platforms, and that would be very much appreciated as well. Uh, now, a reminder that on Sunday at 6 p.m., uh, the Silencing the Academics uh, Symposium will be taking place. This is being organized by uh, the Organization for Propaganda Studies, Propaganda in Focus. Uh, we'll be streaming it out. Uh, Piers Robinson, Daniel Browdy, uh, David Miller, Oliver Boyd Barrett, Jared Ball will be taking part on that. Starts at 6 p.m. UK time. Please join us for that if you possibly can. Uh, and then another date for your diary is next Sunday, again at 6 p.m. That's the 25th of February. Uh, Jackie DeVoy will be hosting a symposium on the Midazolam murders. Uh, so this is subtitled Exposing State-Sanctioned Involuntary Euthanasia. Uh, join us for that as well. Uh, now, Brian has decided to uh, do a little uh, monologue, which he's calling Walking the Dog. Uh, and uh, he will be premiering that on his YouTube channel, his personal YouTube channel, which is uh, literally brand spanking new. We'll see how long it lasts. Uh, but uh, join, join him for that on Sunday uh, at uh, 11 a.m. Uh, and uh, uh, if you just search YouTube, the, the link will be in the description, the show notes under the video later on. But if you just search YouTube for Brian Gerrish and Walking the Dog, you will find this. Uh, you'll be able to watch that at 11, 11 a.m. on uh, Sunday morning. Uh, a quick reminder again of Stand in the Light Festival uh, taking place uh, on May the 24th to the 27th. That's in uh, Workington, near Workington in the Lake District. Uh, that's with uh, the light and Stand in the Park. Get along to that if you possibly can. Uh, and also the Science Beautiful Festival, uh, which will be at uh, Dorset in Wimborne endorse it uh, on the 27th to the 30th of June and we will be at both those events if anybody wants to, to get along to those. Uh, there's a promo code there, UK column, you could win your price of your tickets back or you could win some free tickets for someone else. Uh, do get some and uh, get along to that if you possibly can. Uh, now Vanessa, let's come back on to the Middle East and international uh, events and of course the situation with Hezbollah. Yeah, well, there's been serious escalation um, in the last week between um, border clashes between Israel and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. Um, and interestingly enough, this report came out in Hebrew uh, media. It was picked up by the Resistance News uh, Telegram channel, and I then uh, took a look at it. So it's talking about a report um, that took three years research, uh, the price of war with Hezbollah. The translation from Hebrew is always quite bizarre. 
Um, and it talks about the devastating uh, and bloody war uh, against Hezbollah, and it details um, basically why that would be such a high-risk strategy for Israel. Um, I did actually detail um, a lot of the content of the what is effectively a media review of the report. The report has not yet been made publicly available. Um, the report is entitled The Most Deadly War of All, and it's according to Zionist experts. So this isn't coming from partisan sources. This is coming from Zionist experts, if we just move on. Um, the images as well, by the way, I've taken from uh, the, the Israeli report. Um, it includes the opinions of over 100 experts and IOF uh, commanders who describe the Zionist inability to, to strategically manage a multi-front war based on three years' research. Um, the report was presented to Zionist regime officials in lengthy meetings. Netanyahu, by the way, refused to respond. Meetings that reportedly left key war controllers more worried than before. Six uh, think tanks participated in the research. Um, five were published. The sixth was removed for security considerations. Not quite sure what those were. But let's have a look. I've, I've really condensed it down. You can have a look at my um, report to, to get more detail. So first of all, they're talking about the possible destruction of the Iron Dome batteries by Hezbollah launching barrages of uh, cruise-guided and unguided missiles to destroy the batteries. Hezbollah capable of launching two to 3,000 missiles per day. Reserves of Iron Dome and David Sling interception missiles would likely be depleted within a few days from the start of the potential expanded war, leaving Israel exposed to thousands of missiles with zero defense. This is from a Zionist report, by the way. Targeting uh, Hezbollah would target Air Force runways, hangars, uh, essential uh, infrastructure, ammunition depots, and radar which would degrade the Israeli air superiority. Cyber attacks would cause widespread panic. It would shut down traffic systems, um, close communications, so people simply wouldn't know what was going on as missiles were incoming. And as uh, Sayed Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, noted in 2019, targets could also include, of course, power stations, electric infrastructure, as well as desalination, water transport and the ports of Haifa and Ashdod, all of which lie on a thin strip of coastal land um, in occupied Palestine. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, although as I say, there are more details in the, in the review of the report itself, Hezbollah is not isolated. War would involve the entire resistance axis, which would be in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, and Palestine. And it warns of increased resistance opposition in the West Bank. And funnily enough, in the last two or three days, there have been calls by numerous resistance factions, including the PFLP, of uh, upping the pressure in the West Bank, which, of course, is also being targeted um, for ethnic cleansing. And then finally, the uh, Iranian foreign minister visited Damascus in the last few days. Um, and this video is from uh, part of the press conference with Faisal Muqtad, the Syrian foreign minister, who is very clear over Syria's position on escalating uh, conflict with Israel. These are strong words. I haven't heard him um, use 
this kind of statement in some time, if we can just roll the video. So interesting development. While Israel appears to be escalating the conflict in the north and facing an explosion of resistance uh, pushback in the West Bank, Syria talking about a new war with Israel and that they will pick the time and place when they respond to Israeli unlawful aggression against Syria, which has been ongoing since um, 2011. Um, it's interesting times. As I said, this is an Israeli report um, which has created some trepidation even among the military command in Israel. Uh, and just say that, that uh, your coverage of that is on your substack if anybody wants to find it. But uh, I'll just also mention, Vanessa, you know, the continuing Israeli strikes in Syria uh, came very close mm. to you a few days ago. <laughs> yes. Um, the day before the arrival of the Iranian uh, foreign minister, there was a well, there was the shooting down of two surveillance drones over um, my area of Damascus. Um, and that was followed by a failed assassination attempt uh, at around one in the morning, which was about two streets away from me, um, which brought down an entire um, building, which had luckily been evacuated prior to the strike because of the bringing down of the two surveillance drones. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Now, let's uh, continue with the war theme. Uh, and of course, uh, we've got absolute hysteria going on at the moment. Uh, because of Russian nukes in space. Uh, we can see who's hiding behind the, the globe there. Uh, this has been all over the mainstream press because of a statement made by uh, the US House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner. Uh, and of course, he gave no details uh, because he said that the information was still classified. So he, made the, he threw out this, uh, this claim and then had nothing to back it up. And of course, that left the mainstream media to fill in the gaps, of which there were many. So let's just have a look. Uh, the Telegraph, Russia is preparing to launch nuclear weapon into space, U.S. fears. Uh, we had Defense One, is Russia putting anti-satellite nuke in space? Uh, we had the Mail, how Russia's brazen plan to put nukes in space could cripple America, causing a nationwide blackout, grounding military aircraft fleet and disabling banking system. It gets even worse. Uh, then we had the Sun, Putin planning to launch Russian nuclear weapons into space in serious threat, warns uh, U.S. intelligence. And we can't leave out the uh, Atlantic Council, of course. Uh, experts react. Uh, what to know about Russia's apparent plans for space-based nuclear weapons? So if you want to know what it's all about, even though nobody knows what it's all about because it's apparently still classified and nobody's made any statements about it, if you want to find out what the mainstream media is making up about this stuff, there's plenty of examples right there. But in the meantime, you know, with the, the expansion of the escalation in the Middle East and Ukraine and various other places, uh, what's the Russian attitude to all this? Well, here's Sergei Lavrov, uh, and he's commenting, he was commenting the uh, day before yesterday about uh, the fact that the West is creating instability in region after region. He's saying that the Americans want, so to speak, controlled chaos. However, I actually don't think they know what they're doing. Well, I'm going to say that I think they do know what they're doing, and I think Britain knows what it's doing very, very well, because it's all over 
um, the, the uh, documents and the uh, doctrine that they push out. So let's just have a look at Rusi to start off with. This is uh, going back a little while. This is from uh, the Land Warfare Conference a couple of years ago. Uh, and they were saying this, uh, that uh, on the other hand, they said, since the UK and other NATO members lack conventional dominance of the US, competing beneath the threshold of armed complex, uh, conflict may be necessary. And this is the game that's being played here, as far as I can see. Uh, they're pushing out these, uh, these regional conflicts in various parts of the world, in the Middle East, in Ukraine, in Africa, um, using proxies. It doesn't directly involve us, although we are pushing in weapons and so on. Uh, we're rapidly running out of weapons to continue to push in, but the aim is to maintain a, a level of tension, but we maintain an all-out below the threshold of an all-out kinetic war with Russia or China. Not just Rusi uh, talking about this. Uh, here is uh, uh, the former chief of the, the uh, defense staff uh, saying our new strategic command, which formally stands up next to this is going back a couple of years, uh, as a successor to Joint Forces Command is charged with driving the essential integration across a modernized force to achieve multi-domain effect. But here's the key point. It will develop and generate the capabilities we need to operate successfully in this sub-threshold context or gray zone, as some call it, including space, cyber, special operations, and information operations. Uh, and uh, we cannot forget the comments of Mark Carlton Smith. I think this was 2017. He was the for he's the former chief of the general staff. Uh, let's remind ourselves what he said. Systematically exploiting instead that hybrid space that exists between those two increasingly redundant states of peace and war. Artificial and binary characterizations of a strategic context that no longer exists today, but which still drives much of our policy and legal definition and their associated frameworks. Well, they've mo modernized their associated legal definition and, and frameworks uh, more recently uh, with the various military doctrine out of the Ministry of Defense and other places. Uh, and let's just remind ourselves about the integrated operating concept because this is key. This isn't just about conflict abroad. This is also about conflict at home because the British government, the British military, the British industri military industrial complex perceives home as no longer being a secure sanctuary. Uh, away is no longer a regional horizon, but a global one involving space and electromagnetic spectrum. But of course, home is really important because this is where the information war is happening. It's also where the psychological war is happening, the psychological war on people's minds. So when La La Lavrov is talking about this generated chaos, the target isn't just Russia and China and destabilization there. The target is also destabilization uh, at home. Um, so uh, just keep that in mind. We are actually, as in the general public in the UK, the EU, the United States, are perceived as the enemy, uh, and we need to keep that in mind. And I just want to end this segment. Uh, I, I don't know if you'll have some comments on this, uh, uh, Vanessa, but uh, story coming out. Well, we'll start off with this headline going back to uh, 2022, uh, and this is from December 2022. And the headline is Ukraine's clinical trials, medical clinical trials still recruiting despite ongoing war. More than half of Ukraine's uh, clinical uh, sites are recruiting patients despite the war with Russia. Um, well, in the last day or two, then, there have been allegations that some of these clinical trials, in fact, have been illegal. 
and the Russian uh, authorities have chosen to comment on this. So here's uh, Maria Zakharova uh, talking about this situation. Мы действительно видели эти сообщения, информация шокирует, и она сейчас проверяется. Я не хочу, прежде чем мы получим четкую информацию от экспертов, даже на этот счет рассуждать, чтобы потом не сказали, что мы спекулируем на непроверенной информации. Мы при этом же мы неоднократно рассказывали об американских биолабораториях по всему миру и, в принципе, говорили о том, что всю территорию Украины используют для запуска экспериментов это и медикаменты это и биологические препараты и собственно говоря вооружение которые испытываются буквально на вооруженных сил украины и тех против кого они применяют это вооружение ранее не не тестировавшиеся поэтому еще раз давайте дождемся официального подтверждения и но я не буду удивлена если эта информация подтвердится Vanessa, I'm asking you for comment because you sent me that that little video clip. But but I mean, have you got any thoughts on it? Because the, the names that are being talked about are the usual pharmaceutical companies, uh, Pfizer and the, and the rest. So no surprises in terms of the names that are being discussed. But the idea of illegal uh, clinical trials is well, it should be of concern to everyone. Yeah, I mean, basically, if if it's proven, it's experimentation on children ongoing since 2014. And of course, we have to remember the, that, that for decades, Ukraine has been the hub um, of uh, human trafficking and child trafficking and prostitution trafficking, etc., or drug trafficking also. Um, so I guess we have to wait and see uh, what evidence is produced, but it's pretty horrifying um, if true. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. Uh, ben, let's come back to you then and uh, tell us, what is the conduit? That's a very good question. I'd like to know exactly what the conduit is. I've got some thoughts on it based on my analysis and going down there and having a look around, which I'm going to share with you. But it sits right in the nexus of this public-private partnership, this big global web of interconnected organizations, whether it relates to climate change or any of the other policies being pushed by places like the World Economic Forum. Um, so it's a private members club. It's based in London's Covent Garden. They've also got an outpost in Oslo. They talk about um, gathering change makers. Yes, it's a progressive institution. Uh, they describe themselves as a diverse and dynamic community of like-minded individuals united by a shared vision of creating a more sustainable, equitable and just future. Again, all of those neo-Marxist buzzwords right on their website. It was established in 2018 by these three gentlemen, Nick Hamilton, who's a former investment banker, and he also, at around the same time, founded Conduit Capital Partners, which is an impact investment manager based at the club, at the same address in Covent Garden. Uh, the other founder was Rowan Finnegan, the founder of Regenerative Group, a purpose-driven investment fund focused on systems change for the creation of a more sustainable world. He's on the right-hand side there. And the third partner was Paul Van Zyl, who's actually quite a high-profile fella. He was uh, the executive secretary of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, appointed by Nelson Mandela himself, as I understand it. And he's also a graduate of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader Program, right? So this is an organization that has been set up by someone trained by Klaus Schwab 
et al. I've been following it for a little while. It's a very interesting organization. The reason I headed down there a couple of weeks ago now was because they were running as part of their cultural program an event called The Rise of the Far Right and What We Can Do About It, which is basically a big um, scare session about Trump and some stuff that may or may not be happening in Poland and a whole bunch of other things. And I went down there to record some interviews with some of the attendees, mainly just to find out what the far right is and whether could, anyone could define it for me. Turns out no one really could. And also no one presenting was able to define what it was. Uh, and I've written about that on my Substack, riseuk.substack.com. You can go and check that film out. Um, but as I was making that film, I started digging into the conduit a little bit more to understand who they are and what they're about. And they're really a, like a catalyst for transformation. That's how they describe themselves on, on their website. They bring together three things, capital, community, and content. Yeah, so it's money, people, and ideas in order to affect and to catalyze transformational change. Yeah, this is the recipe for how you systemically reshape British society, yes, because it's based in London, but also I think that this is a key global conduit for World Economic Forum policy into the global NGO, uh, consultants, corporate political classes who use London as one of their main international hubs. And obviously, this is an extraordinarily expensive elite organization. It's two grand a year to be a member. It's a £350 upfront membership fee. Um, but that is the way with these things, right? Uh, these people don't really seem to sense the irony in their own positions, their own activities. Now, if we could just get that last slide back up quickly, because there's something on the right-hand side I just want to refer to. So um, as, as well as being a catalyst for change, they're also a proud partner of London Climate Action Week. That's happening in June. As you might be able to tell from that logo, it's very tightly linked to the SDGs. You can see all the little 17 segments of the SDGs in the centre of London there. Um, and uh, that is uh, the, uh, also a, 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 a big event on the Goals House Canada. So they run a Goals House, Broad Communication run a Goals House at London Climate Action Week. Now, the Climate Action Week itself uh, is run by this organisation. Right? It's called E3G. And they, they're an independent think, think tank. They call themselves world-leading strategists on the political economy of climate change dedicated to achieving a safe climate for all. Um, they call themselves independent, but obviously that means that they're funded by Open Societies, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, Children's Investment Fund, Chatham House are funding them. Department for International Development, UK Government Department, Bristol City, City Council, who I talked about last week. Right, so they're not really independent at all. They're, they're backed by these people, the, the philanthropic and political entities that are pushing these globalist agendas. Um, interesting uh, crop of people. I mean, they've got a lot of employees and been going for about 18 years now. So I'm just going to point to three people in particular that really jumped out at me. The first one is Nick Maybe, who's the owner and founder of E3G, which runs London Climate Action Week. So he set it up uh, nearly 18 years ago now. And before that, he was uh, an advisor to number 10 uh, 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 and number 10 to Tony Blair when he was prime minister and uh, almost certainly would have worked with Lord Gould uh, in that capacity, who I mentioned earlier. They actually left at the same time, interestingly, left number 10 at the same time. Also, Lucy Yu, this is a fascinating young woman. She's a non-executive E3G 
she's also the chief executive of the Center for Net Zero, which is part of Octopus Group, yeah, um, a, a sort of a, a, an emergent and uh, ascendant group of companies crossing energy, finance, a whole bunch of other areas. She's the chief executive. She's also um, on 3CI. She's, she's an advisor to 3CI, the organization that I mentioned earlier as it relates to Georgia Gould, and I spoke about last week. She's, she's currently an advisor to the Tony Blair Institute for, for Global Change. And she's also an advisor to the Connected Places Catapult, which is uh, an accelerator for, for getting smart city technology out in, into the UK, right? So she sits at the nexus of a whole bunch of organizations. Right? And her background is as, as an academic, uh, writing policy statements for central government, really, really interesting individual, Lucy Yoon. Uh, we'll talk about her more as time goes along. I'm sure she sits right in the middle of a bunch of things here. Um, but then really fascinatingly, this was, this was a great one to come across. I love just finding these sort of things lying around. Is Sandrine Dixon de Cleve, who's an associate of E3G, and who is also the president of the Club of Rome. Right, so this organization that is, we've gone from the conduit to London Climate Action Week to E3G, straight to the Club of Rome. Right, she's obviously in there to represent the interests of these sorts of people, uh, your uh, people watching the column will be familiar with the Club of Rome. It's a think tank set up in the late 60s that brings together global political and corporate players from, you know, Bill Gates to David Rockefeller to Bill Clinton to Kofi Annan and a whole bunch of others. You can see Al Gore's on there, who we spoke about earlier. Um, and they sit right in the nexus of this global public-private partnership model, right? And this is a, a phenomenal piece of work produced by Ian Davis, with some help, I believe, from Richard D. Hall as well, actually, which I didn't even know until today came from UK Column or from, from the group of people surrounding UK Column. But I saw this when it, when it came out a couple of years ago. I was like, this is fantastic. Um, how, how helpful. And it shows all the different layers in the public-private partnership model from policymakers at the top down to the policy subjects at the bottom, which is us, the hoi polloi in the pit down below. Um, and the, the, we've just been through, just through those two organizations, the Conduit um, and uh, E3G, uh, essentially, if you just click on, oh, yeah, we can see there, no, no, they've come up, it's fine. Um, basically, we, 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 we are covering, just through those two organizations, huge sways of the global public-private public partnership ecosystem. You've got the World Economic Forum in there, the Club of Rome, Chatham House, the Rockefellers, the UN, the philanthropists, national governments, the policy propagandists, E3G and the Conduit and London Climate Action Week are right in the thick of all of it. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. Now, I just want to end the program today uh, with the wonderful Tobias Elwood, because many of you will know uh, that a couple of days ago, uh, his home was invaded by some disgraceful protesters who decided to go out uh, with uh, and camp outside his property uh, with some megaphones and shout uh, protest at him. Uh, except he wasn't at home because he had been warned by the police not to go home uh, and uh, his family wasn't at home either. But nonetheless, uh, it resulted in a bunch of headlines like this one from the BBC, Tobias Elwood says MPs are not fair game after protests at home. And I was wondering why, why did this happen? Why now? And so on. And I did, I very much wondered whether this was in fact some uh, kind of, whether this was a genuine protest or not, let's put it that way. And uh, fascinating therefore, that the Home Office has just released uh, some proposed amendments to the upcoming criminal justice bill. 
Uh, now, just to remind everybody what this is about. Uh, first of all, it's uh, making sentences longer for the most uh, dangerous criminals, including by making rapists serve every day of their sentence behind bars. Uh, it's about establishing powers to transfer prisoners in and out of England and Wales to serve their sentence abroad. Uh, it's not just Julian Assange that's facing that, but many other people as well. Uh, give the police the powers they need to tackle theft by creating a new power to enter premises without a warrant to search for and seize stolen goods such as phones located using GPS tracking technology. Uh, give the police greater access to driver and vehicle licensing agency database to identify criminals. Uh, and just a quick reminder that this fits into a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on at the minute, which is really uh, pretty draconian. We've been talking about the types of legislation that we've seen uh, over the last few years. This is just the next tranche. Uh, and, but of course, we shouldn't forget that it's also going to help vulnerable individuals off the streets and direct them to appropriate support. So you won't be, if you're homeless, allowed to be out in the streets, be lifted and uh, taken off somewhere who knows where. We've already seen uh, that type of thing happening with uh, property uh, belonging to homeless people just being thrown in the back of uh, of uh, bin lorries and so on. But uh, here's the point. The Home Office in the last few days has uh, released some new amendments which is going to crack down pretty heavily on uh, the right to protest, for example, uh, as we saw outside um, Tobias Elwood's home. Uh, so uh, the police uh, already have the ability to ask uh, individuals to remove uh, various uh, face coverings and so on if necessary, but face coverings would be banned at protests from now on, which is quite ironic, bearing in mind what we've just been through over the last four years. Uh, the flares and pyrotechnics are going to be uh, uh, absolutely banned and so on, uh, but a whole bunch of other restrictions on campaigning and protest uh, coming into the uh, the um, criminal justice bill, and just at the right time, just as this was announced, uh, this event happens uh, at Tobias Alwood's house, who we should never forget is a serving reservist uh, for 77 Brigade, uh, the UK government's uh, propaganda and spying operation. So. Uh, all a coincidence, I'm sure, uh, and I'm sure uh, Ben and Vanessa will have a little bit more to add to that in, in extra. But we've got to leave it there for today. I'm going to say thank you very much to Ben and Vanessa for joining me today, and thank you all for watching. Uh, we will see you uh, on Monday at 1 p.m. Have a great weekend, and uh, well, if you're that's if you're not a UK column member, we'll see you otherwise for extra in a couple of minutes. Bye bye.